Now it came about that on a certain Sabbath, he was passing through some grain fields, and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of wheat, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, well, in verse 1, this Sabbath incident, we will, this will be the first of two in this passage. The Sabbath incident that we have here is often, we know, in the ministry of Christ, a platform or an opportunity for the opponents of Christ to attack Him. Because they are fault finders, they're grumblers, they are nitpicking here and there in order to undermine Christ and His ministry. We know that that is a common practice. And that's what we will see here and in the next passage. In the first verse, it says that it is a certain Sabbath. This is the New American Standard Bible. Or your Bible might say, uh, second first Sabbath, which means the second Sabbath after the first. That is confusing, but if this is taking place in the time between the Passover and Pentecost... There were Sabbaths that were leading up to Pentecost between Passover and Pentecost. So the first one after the Sabbath starts or after the Passover starts, that would be called the second first Sabbath or the first Sabbath after the second. Meaning after the second day of the Passover, once it started, the next Sabbath is called the first Sabbath. And then there would be a sequence of Sabbaths leading up to the day of Pentecost 50 days later. Seven Sabbaths like that. This is likely what's happening. And it's saying this to give us an idea of what time period we're dealing with. We're dealing with the spring and we're dealing with the time when the wheat would uh, be growing and the time of harvest. So this is why the text tells us that. But also it's telling us it's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath day. And that's a day of controversy because the nitpickers and grumblers are looking for an opportunity. Well, verse 1 says that his disciples, Christ's disciples, were picking and eating the heads of wheat, rubbing them in their hands. So they're rubbing them in their hands in order to get to the wheat and to, to eat them. Now this text in verse 1 does not explicitly say that they were very hungry or that they had no food, or something like that. It doesn't say that. But because Jesus refers to David in verses 3 and 4, it's likely that just as David in 1 Samuel chapter 21, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, when David was running from Saul, he and his men did not have food. They were desperate for food, so they went to the priest and asked if they could partake of the priest's bread the bread of the presence that would have been there um, every day of the week and fresh bread placed there each week, hot bread placed there each week. So he has this exchange with the high priest of the day in 1 Samuel 21, and the high priest is willing to give it to David and to his soldiers, which is an exception because the scripture says that only the priests are supposed to eat that bread. 
only they were, but in this exceptional circumstance, because they were in a dire circumstance, the priest makes an exception and says it's okay. They were not doing out of malice. They were not doing it out of disobedience. They knew what the law said, but they had an exceptional circumstance, and the priest knew it, David knew it, and then they gave, the priest gave the food to David and his men. So this is likely what's happening with his disciples. For whatever reason, probably they did not have food, and they needed to do that, so they did it on the Sabbath. But verse 2 says, But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, in one sense, what they're asking is true, in the sense that if you have means, and if your situation is normal and regular, then you shouldn't be working on the Sabbath. An example of this is Numbers chapter 15. There was a man in Numbers 15, in the time of Moses, working on the Sabbath, and out in the field, and then he was confronted, and Moses consulted the Lord, and the Lord said he ought to be put to death, because he knows he's doing wrong, and he should not be doing that. He should have refrained from working on the Sabbath. His situation wasn't desperate like David's, nor the disciples here. The Pharisees knew that exceptions were possible. They knew that. They knew that people were more important than animals and people were more important than plants. They knew that, but they were looking for an occasion to blame Christ. And this is why Jesus answers in verse 3. And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? Have you not even read? Now, David was not blameworthy. There's no curse on David. There's no punishment on David in 1 Samuel 21. When he did that, there's no reference whatsoever. And in fact, it was a good thing that the priest gave him food so that he and his men could survive while they fled Saul. And that's evident. Anybody reading 1 Samuel 21 will see that. Anyone reading it would not blame David or see any implication that God accused David and his men of doing wrong. That wouldn't have been there at all. That's why he says, have you not even read? Of course they did, but if you did read it, then why don't you believe what's written? He's not going to some, scripture or some uh, source outside of the Scriptures. He's going to the Scriptures themselves, which they would have known. They would have known about that incident. And David did something that was contrary to the regular law. David, a king, and, a, and the people who are not priests outside of that circle, outside of that commandment, if anybody were to eat it on a regular basis, then it would have been sin. And this is what D Jesus is pointing out, that David did this, and yet there's no guilt. He, he did it contrary to what's regularly done, but there's no guilt, because God understood the situation, and God in intended for the people to understand from that, that there are exceptions. There are reasons and times when the commandment says one thing, but as long as it's not transgressing a moral command, then you should make the exception. You should do what is obvious in the situation to help the needy people. And this is what Jesus points out to them. They don't have an answer. 
They don't have anything to say. And even in the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, they don't have anything to say. They know Jesus is right. So Jesus silenced them, which was his practice. Jesus' practice was whenever they brought up a, a false argument, an accusation, he would shoot it down. He would make sure that they were silenced and that they would go in retreat. That's what he does here. And he concludes by saying, verse 5, And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Christ is now saying, I'm the one who gave that Sabbath commandment. And since I'm the one who gave that Sabbath commandment, I can correctly interpret its original intention. And I can tell you what I intended when I first spoke it. You know, we speak of how there are appearances of Christ and revelations of Christ in the Old Testament. This is known as Christophanies, appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, when He comes to reveal the Word of God. And John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, or the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So when God reveals himself in the Old Testament, it's actually Christ revealing himself to people. So notice Exodus chapter 20, how we can derive this conclusion, just as Jesus did, that the, Jesus is the Son of Man and he is Lord of the Sabbath. Exodus 20, where the Sabbath commandment is delivered, verse 1, it says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right there we have that the Lord is speaking to Moses and, and then also to the people. So, if the Lord is speaking, notice verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Look at that phrase. A Sabbath of the Lord your God. So who instituted the Sabbath? The Lord your God did. And if the Lord your God instituted it, then he knows what he meant by this institution. And it says, In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here... In this passage, the Lord who institutes it says that this is in order to commemorate the creation of the world, that God is the creator. And God created the world according to his own will, according to his powerful will, as he pleased. That's how he created the world. So if he created the world and the Sabbath, then he knows what he meant by it. And what we ought to do is reflect on that truth. Another example is Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is a repetition of the Ten Commandments. And then we come to the Sabbath commandment. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. 5, 12. As Lord of the Sabbath, what does the Sabbath mean? And who is going to dictate what it means? Deuteronomy 5, 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. 
In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male and your female servant may rest as well as you. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. In this passage, most of it is like Exodus 20, but verse 15 gives an additional reason. To remember their redemption from slavery. They're supposed to remember their redemption from slavery. And in this way, the Sabbath is intended to remind us of our redemption from sin. The Sabbath reminds us of our redemption from sin. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. Hebrews 4, 1. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Now, what rest is he talking about here? We'll see that he's talking about redemptive rest. Not physical rest, but redemptive. Verse 2. For indeed, we have had the gospel preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said in a certain place concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Now, his point is, God rested, and we are reminded by that rest, the rest of creation, on the seventh day, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But then later, they shall not enter my rest, quoting Psalm 95. So why does David, in 1000 BC, speak of a rest that is yet to come? Why does he speak of a rest that's yet to come that the people could not experience because of their hardness of heart? He explains. Verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. The rest of creation is related to the rest of redemption in that we are supposed to reflect on both. And we are supposed to make sure the Sabbath day reminds us that God is creator and redeemer and make sure we are a part of that redemptive rest. Confirm and make, uh, make sure that we belong to Christ, that we have entered that ultimate Sabbath rest that belongs to the people of God. This is what the Pharisees did not understand. 
And they were so um, focused on bringing Christ down that they did not reflect on the true meaning of the Sabbath. And they got caught up with trying to trap and ensnare Christ that they wouldn't listen. Another incident happens. Another incident, verse, verses 6 to 11. Luke 6, 6. And it came about on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Arise and come forward. And he arose and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. In this case, another Sabbath day comes, and he is in the synagogue and teaching. Now let's think about that for just a moment. The purpose of entering the synagogue for Christ on the Sabbath day was to worship God and also to teach the Word of God to the people. This is something Jesus did as His custom was, as it says that in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. He enters the synagogue. He goes to worship and worship God and hear and teach the Word of God. Let's see this in Acts chapter 2. We'll see the same as the apostles' practice is. Acts chapter 2. And verse 42, Acts 2, 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. It does not say explicitly anything about the Sabbath day, but it does talk about their regular gatherings and what they did. They were listening to the apostles' teaching. They were fellowshipping, breaking bread, and praying. They were sharing uh, whenever someone had need, and they were day by day keeping one mind. They had unity. They broke bread from house to house. They ate together. They were glad and sincere. They praised God, and they had the favor of all the people. They led, led this kind of a life day by day. But Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 will tell us the, the custom of the Apostle Paul. Acts 17 Verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, 
This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Christ or Paul goes to prove that Christ is, or Jesus is the Christ, from Sabbath to Sabbath. He reasons, he's teaching the scriptures, he's trying to convince the people that they should believe the scriptures and that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah. This is what he does on the Sabbath day. It's not exclusive to the early disciples. It's also expected of all of us to do the same. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 23. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Holding fast the confession is, is this exhortation here without wavering, because who, he who promised is faithful, and we ought to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. One or the other of us might know how to help the other by the word of God. The implication is you're not going to help by your wisdom, but by the wisdom of the word of God, and people need help. They need help to know how to love God, love their neighbor, how to do good instead of evil. And this happens by not forsaking our own assembling together. Some people have the habit of doing that, but we shouldn't have that. We should encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we see the day of the return of Christ and the end of the world draw near, we have to be ready for that. And he who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When we have that hope set before us, that day that Christ returns, we're going to desire greater and greater purity because we will see Christ face to face. This is why Jesus went into the synagogue and taught. The Pharisees and all of his opponents didn't get it. They missed it completely. And this is why they confront Jesus when Jesus wants to do good and help somebody on the Sabbath. There's a man with a, uh, whose right hand was withered. And verse 7, The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. You know, we've come across people like this. Somebody smiles and they say, Why did you smile? Somebody gives a look and they wonder, why did you give that look? And they, they nitpick and they find fault. Jude said that this is the way accusers and false teachers would be. Notice, he says in Jude verse 16, These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. They knew full well. They had their own interpretations of the laws of Moses and even the Sabbath commandment. And they are quite explicit that when there is somebody in need, a human in need, and even an animal in need on the Sabbath day, falling into a pit, they even explain these examples. They say it's good and right for you to help that human or that animal, but especially a human, who's in a desperate circumstance. Go help him out. And that's not breaking the Sabbath. 
That's not breaking the Sabbath and bringing guilt on you. You're innocent if you break it in that sense because you did something exceptional that was necessary. They already knew that. But here, they want to accuse Christ because they think and wonder, and, and right there in verse 8 it says, but he knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were thinking, that they were looking to find fault with him because when, they, uh, when people are irrational like they are, they know what the truth is, but they won't settle on that truth because their zeal for evil and their feelings of one way or another control them so much, they have no self-control, they have no sobriety of thought, so that they, all that's on their mind is, I want to find a way to accuse so-and-so. That's what's going on with them. They want nothing to do with Christ and the true purposes of the Sabbath, they just want to accuse him on the Sabbath. So Jesus knew all this. And we notice in verse 8, but he knew what they were thinking. As God in human flesh, he knew what they were thinking. And, and as they uh, whisper and speak to each other, he, he knows what's going on. He knows what's going on. And so he said to the man with the withered hand, Arise and come forward. And he arose and came forward. This, withered, uh, this um, uh, um, man with the withered hand there in their midst, he obeys Christ. Notice that. He also knows, likely, after hearing the reports of Christ's ability, that Christ could heal him, and he, that's why he comes forward. But also notice that Jesus, even though he knew that his accusers were there and were about to say something, he still put it in their face. Jesus didn't back off. He didn't say, well, I know it's a Sabbath day and I'm going to go to extreme measures in order to uh, make sure that there's no conflict on the Sabbath day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue this the next day. Well, maybe the next day I'll invite them over to my house and I'll serve them lunch and so on. I'll pacify them and I'll have a better setting. Maybe I'll do it in a very pleasant and peaceful environment. He doesn't think about that. He puts this back on their face, into their presence, because it's necessary. It's necessary for their sin to be confronted, and it's necessary for the people around to understand who is on the side of God and who's on the side of the devil. Who's doing right and who's doing wrong. People need to know. And if we keep silent, or if Jesus would have kept silent, then people wouldn't have known. They would have been misled. They would have been confused. They would wonder what's going on. So he doesn't allow any of that confusion. He exposes them by presenting uh, this man in front of them all. Verse 9, And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? He asked them a question to put them on the spot. And notice, no answer. There's no answer. They were silenced by that question. They knew what the truth was. They knew full well what the truth was, that they could do good on the Sabbath, that they could save a life on the, the Sabbath. They knew that they could do that. And even 
if they were in the military and warfare broke out on the Sabbath day, what are they going to do? They knew they were supposed to defend themselves and their own country on the Sabbath day in order to, to destroy life, to kill somebody. They knew that they could do that, just as they knew they could help a desperate man. This man was desperate, and Jesus wanted to heal him and expose the wickedness of the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 10, And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. He looks around. He's trying to engage his audience to make sure that they know what's happening. And, and he wants them to understand what he's doing. He looks at, around at them all so that they are on his side, not on the side of his opponents. Stretch out your hand. Another command. And he did so. And his hand was completely restored. Though if this is implied that it happened then and there. Not that it took a few days or a month or any length of time. It happened then and there because it says in verse 11, but they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. They saw him instantly healed. That's why they're full of rage on the spot and then looking for a time to destroy Christ. They should have been happy that there was a an ill man made well on the Sabbath. They should have been happy. They, th that would have been a perfect example of creation and redemption. That is, cre creation, fall, and redemption. Creation, the world is created perfectly. There's no sin, no evil, no, no illnesses, maladies, nothing like that that exists, no death. But then the fall occurs, Genesis 3, and then sin enters the world and a curse comes on us so that our human bodies are frail and they are susceptible to sickness and death. But Jesus restores this man just as this is a symbol of what Christ will do with our soul and our bodies, both our, uh, first our soul now and then our bodies later. He will restore us now, our souls now, by conversion and then our bodies on the day of resurrection. So. This man is a perfect example of the fall, creation, fall, and redemption. But because they're not focused on the purpose of the Sabbath, they, they're focused on accusing Christ of sin. They can't think about the right thing. And in fact, they don't have peace, they don't have comfort, they don't have any joy, which they should have, in thinking about God and worshiping God and what God does through Christ with this man. That's not on their mind. So what do they have? They're full of rage. This is the way they are. They are hateful people. They're angry people. They cannot think about the truth of God and rejoice in that. This is characteristic of the wicked. They will attack us, persecute us, and malign us and slander us. They're full of rage. And they can constantly think of what they can do against us. We should not be worried about that. Don't be anxious about it. Just know that as Christ suffered, we'll suffer. We are a part of the body of Christ. He is our head. So if the head suffers, the rest of the body will suffer. No worries. He'll take care of us. And He'll bring us safely into His heavenly kingdom. Now, a transition in verses 12 to 19. Up to this point in his ministry, he has not had 
the twelve set aside as his apostles. The twelve and others, many others, are following him from place to place, but he has not set them aside to be his apostles. All of, all of this is a precursor, what we saw in chapters 3, 4, 5, and up to this point in chapter 6. All of this is a precursor and an introduction and a confirmation to the disciples, later named apostles, the twelve, that Christ is indeed who John the Baptist said he was. It's a confirmation. Time and again, they are convinced by this point. They had to be discipled some before they could be his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. And that's what we have right here in 12 to 19. Let's see what happens before he appoints them and calls them. Verse 12, And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. That's how we know there were many others around. He chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he descended with them and stood on a level place. And there was a great multitude of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the multitude were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. He spends the whole night in prayer to God. This is indicative of the importance of what he's about to do. He spends the whole night in prayer to God because what he's about to do is to choose these apostles to preach the gospel. And we know that Judas Iscariot, the traitor, the betrayer, he's going to fall to the side. But the 11 and then Judas' replacement, Matthias, Acts chapter 1, that these 12 would be the foundational leadership after Christ's ascension. So he's praying that they are confirmed and solidified in their faith, that they will press on and persevere in their faith, that they would be well trained. He's doing all this for them. But what he does for them is not exclusive to them in that he also, Christ also, intercedes for us. He did it for them for that special task that they have as apostles, but he also intercedes for us, and this is a reminder of that, that we don't go through our ministry, we don't go through our life and our discipleship alone, but Christ is with us and he intercedes for us. Notice Romans 8, Romans eight twenty six, And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches the, mind, uh, the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There we have the, this intercession by the Spirit, but also notice in verse, uh, later in Romans 8 and verse 34. 
Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Christ and the Spirit, they both intercede for us. One more place is Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, 23. 7, 23. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is our great intercessor. He interceded for the apostles to make sure that they were prepared and persevered in their ministry and Christian life, and the same with us. Christ is there. Christ and His Holy Spirit are there for us. So if we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on our side, we are prepared for any task. Then they are named. They are named apostles and disciples, verse 13. Disciple and apostle, depending on the context. Sometimes we say the twelve disciples, and sometimes we say the twelve apostles. Depends on the, the setting and the purpose. A disciple is one who learns and grows in, in knowledge as a student uh, with his master and teacher. And an apostle is one who is commissioned, who is sent out to do ministry. He's commissioned as a missionary to go here and there and to do the preaching and teaching ministry. They are named, we know Simon, whom he also named Peter. Peter also has a third designation in John 1.42, Jesus called Peter Cephas, another name. Peter means rock and Cephas also means rock. Peter is um, coming from um, the, the Greek and uh, Cephas is coming from an Aramaic word. And the word Simon, Simon is like the son of Judah, uh, sorry, son of Jacob, uh, Simeon. And a, sh a shortened form of Simeon is this name Simon. So he has those names. Andrew was his brother. Andrew has uh, this one name in Scripture. James and John, elsewhere they are called the sons of Zebedee. You can cross-reference this passage with Matthew 10, 1-4, where their names appear. And then... We have Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is also likely Nathaniel of John chapter 1. Nathaniel and Bartholomew. Matthew and Thomas. Matthew is Levi. Matthew is also Levi in uh, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 and verses 27 to 28. He's called Levi there. The same individual. And then Thomas. Thomas is called um, the, the doubter, doubting Thomas. We know him that way. He's also called the twin or Didymus. Um, from John chapter 20, we read that he is called by that name. Um, John 20, 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And then we have James, the son of Alphaeus, who is also likely the Thaddeus of Matthew chapter 10. Then Simon, called the Zealot. 
because he, he, this Simon has to be distinguished from Simon Peter, and it, in doing so, he's called the Zealot. The Zealots were Jews who were militant and trying to overthrow the Roman government. That's why they were called Zealots. And Simon was one of them, but now he's become a disciple of Christ. He was one of them. He was converted out of that and became a disciple of Christ. Then there's Judas, the son of James. In order to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon Iscariot, according to John chapter 6, 66 to 71. And this is the one who was the traitor, the betrayer, the one who sold um, Jesus for 30 pieces of silver in order to identify Jesus and where he would be located in the dark in the Garden of Gethsemane. He orchestrated this with uh, the chief priests and the others. These are Jesus' 12 disciples. Now, Jesus chose these 12. They did not choose Jesus. But when Jesus chose these 12, he knew that Judas Iscariot was set for destruction. So there's no mistake here. There is intentionality here, which illustrates to us the fact that God may bring people into the ministry and even people into the church but that does not necessarily mean that those in the ministry and those in the church are necessarily saved people, righteous people, redeemed people. It doesn't necessarily mean that. God uses people in the pulpit and even in the pew in churches like this, even though they don't know him, they don't belong to him. Now let's make this clear with Judas Iscariot that he is not a believer and never was a believer. John 6, John chapter 6, verse 70. John 6, 70. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? One of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now let's turn to John 12. John 12. What was the main sin that Judas Iscariot practiced that shows that he practiced sin and he loved um, this rather than God? John 12, 6. Now he said this, that is, Judas Iscariot said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. He used to pilfer or steal what was put into the money box. He was a thief. The other disciples did not know he was stealing the money, but Jesus did know. Then, John chapter 13. John 13 and verse 10. This is when Jesus is in the upper room and he's going to wash the feet of his disciples. And verse 10, Jesus said to him, to Simon Peter, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. This is a figure of speech when he says, the one who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. He's saying, you have been saved from your sins. You are redeemed. 
you're not going to be condemned on the day of judgment, but there is need for you to regularly wash your feet. You have to regularly wash your feet. That is, confess your sins regularly. You do need to do that. And I know that you all are clean, but not one of you, not all of you. And he knew which one that was. And he says in verse 18, 13, 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From Psalm 41, 9, this is the scripture that has to be fulfilled in Judas. He chose the ones, the eleven for salvation, but not one of them for salvation. Then John 17, John 17, 12. 17, 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of the twelve perished except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That son of perdition is Judas Iscariot. All right, then back to Luke 6. Luke six seventeen to 19. He descends. He was on a mountain, as it says in verse 12. But when he descended that mountain, he's still on the mountain, and he finds a level place before he goes all the way to the bottom of the mountain. He finds a level place, and this ought to be paralleled with Matthew 5, uh, Matthew chapters 5 to 7. The famous Sermon on the Mount is also this sermon that we will study next time in Luke 6, 20 to 49. Luke 6, 20 to 49. It's the same sermon. The, the verbiage is slightly different here or there, but it's the same sermon that Jesus preached in Matthew 5 to 7 that he's about to preach in verses 20 to 49. I mention this because some think that this is known or should be known as the Sermon on the Plain, not the, an equivalent to the Sermon on the Mount. I take the view that this is the same as Matthew 5 to 7. He didn't descend all the way on the mountain. He's still on the mountain, but he found a level place. And when he did, notice, great multitude of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon the coastal region on the Mediterranean, eastern side of the Mediterranean coast, where the land of Israel is. Those cities of Tyre and Sidon, people came from that distance to come and hear Christ. They come to not only hear Him, because He's a novelty, and He knows how to speak well, and He speaks with authority, as it says in Matthew 7, 28-29. They were amazed at His teaching, for He spoke with authority and not as their scribes. He was a different kind of a teacher. So they came to hear him. He was a novelty to them, but also to be healed of their diseases, those who were demon-possessed, here called unclean spirits, and they would just try to touch him. The power of God was in him so much that all they needed to do was touch him, and they knew that, and they would be healed. 
This is what God was doing. Now, it's good that the people are coming to him in a sense, but we ought to note that the crowds would often come to him not because they really wanted to hear the truth, but they would come to him because he was an oratory novelty, and they would come to him because they could be healed of diseases and also healed of evil spirits. They came for those reasons. Now, though huge crowds followed him, a few came for those things for the right reasons. Few of them came for the right reasons, but most of them came for the wrong reasons. Here's another example. Just as we said of Judas Iscariot in verse 16, that he was a traitor, that he was in there, and ostensibly he was a believer, but really he was an unbeliever. And in the same way, you will have many people come and ostensibly you think they are believers, but really the vast majority of people are unbelievers and just a few of them are true believers. This is the remnant. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet it is the remnant that shall be saved. Just, with, just like with Israel, the, the nation of Israel, a remnant or a few are saved. That's the way it is with Gentiles. Many Gentiles here but few Gentiles truly believe. This is the way it is. So we should not be um, misled into thinking that all of these huge uh, crowds, that they all really believed. They did not all really believe. One example of this is John chapter 6. When in John chapter 6, Jesus fed them, that, that is the... 5,000, and that is the one miracle recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When he fed the 5,000, they came and followed him from one side to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus confronts them and says, You seek me not because you saw signs and believe those signs, but because you were filled with the loaves. You ate of the loaves and were filled. You came because your belly was full. You came because you saw a miracle. You didn't come for a spiritual truth. And then when he discourses with them about the spiritual truths and what they need to believe, by the end of the chapter, they all withdraw. They don't follow him anymore because they could not accept his hard teachings. This is likely what's happening here in Luke chapter 6, something similar to that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.